and welcome to another episode of the Barefoot Mediator podcast, news and views from Jane Gunn and guests. In this episode, I speak with Alistair Lobo, who is a leadership coach and expert in business and personal transformation. We discuss why we may be experiencing a leadership crisis, the difference between egocentric and servant leadership, and the impact this is having in business and society in these disruptive times. Welcome, Alistair. Thank you, Jane. Lovely to be here. It is. Uh, We've had so many chats, Alistair, over the last few years. I'm really excited to record one of them at last and and specifically talk about your specialist area of leadership. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. So t- tell us a bit about your background to start with, wh- where you where you've come from, if you like, and your your passion for your work. Yeah. Well, I guess it goes all the way back to as long ago as I can remember. Um, I was really interested in human behaviour, even as a child, and I was also very interested in businesses and how they worked. And having had a quite a long business career and various uh, businesses um i worked in a corporate world where i worked at a fairly high level and then i had my own company and sold that and i really began to realize that i loved helping people to become great leaders um you know and leadership was a a, a real thing you know business leadership and what i call purposeful leadership which is more of a spiritual thing which is not you know, everyone's cup of tea in business. As soon as you mention the word spiritual to a lot of people in business, they're like, oh, that sounds a bit bit woolly to me. But but I realized that that's really what I loved. I loved uh, working with businesses that had a, had a purpose. Didn't really matter what industry or sector they were in. It was about how they were trying to make a difference in whatever field they were in and about the people within the business. And I really got into uh, studying values. I worked with a guy called Dr. John D. Martini. He was He's one of my mentors. I have a number of mentors and he um, is the world's leading authority in axiology. Axiology is a study of values and something that I've done a pretty deep dive on and worked with a lot of businesses to help them get clear on their values at, at an individual level and at a collective level as a business and build their culture around that. And, you know, understanding values is a key part of being a better leader, I believe, being able to communicate uh, with people what your values are but also communicate with them in terms of their highest values and understand their values whether it's team members or customers or, or whatever so that that's been a big part of my journey and you know more recently and uh, the last couple of years I've ended up interestingly working with a lot of doctors and scientists who have turned to me for help in the leadership arena and one area that I haven't mentioned I because I'm a martial artist I, I got involved many years ago uh, with teaching a guy called John Robson, who was the multiple British Kung Fu champion. And I was his mindset coach for his whole career. And I worked with a few other fighters as well. I'm, I'm a black belt karate myself. And what I've learned in mindset, um, I also bring that to the table with um, the leaders that I work with. And then, of course, communication is the crossover between mindset and values and I've worked, as I say, I've worked with a lot of quite high profile doctors and scientists throughout the pandemic because they've had various challenges um, with communication and, and mindset. So yeah, that wasn't an area I was expecting to work in, but it's been it's been a pleasure to do that as well. But that's pretty much taken me up to this point here where I'm actually currently writing a book called Leadership Crisis. And I'm 
three quarters of the way through the book at the moment. I'm hoping to get it published in the next couple of months, certainly have it finished written in two months time. And then, you know, looking at the various publishing options at the moment, but yeah, so, so um, yeah, so leadership crisis is about what, what I see going on in the world right now. We are, uh, there's always leadership crises going on in the world, which has been, but we are entering or we have entered a winter season of leadership crisis in terms of, you know, historically the last, um, winter crisis we had uh was in 1929 um, right. and it's like a seasonal term comes from alice to the term winter crisis in terms of leadership yeah so so um what i've discovered through studying the history of leadership my interest in leadership has obviously gone beyond business it's gone to all other areas of life politics and you know religion and social and uh, medical etc there's there's leadership in all kinds of different fields and that led me to studying the history of leadership and what i found is that we had there's this is like a cycle and there's a there's a famous famous there's a quote that i really like um from a guy and he's um his name's michael uh, hopf and he's um ex-military guy and he said hard times create strong men yeah. strong men create good times yeah. good times create weak men and weak men create hard times. And, you know, his his background is is looking at the history of the military. And I see this is very true for all forms of leadership. So what I found is by studying uh, conflicts, and if you look historically, when there's more conflicts and less conflicts, you know, usually in the form of war, but they can be um, you know, economic wars. You, you obviously get more recently. You know, we, we've not only got tanks and guns wars, we have trade wars and economic wars and if you look at those uh, historically there's a pattern where you get a greater prevalence of those when you're in a winter season of leadership um, what i call a leadership crisis so essentially there's this oscillation between two modalities of leadership which we're all capable of one of them is egocentric leadership and one of them is authentic servant leadership and a good example of authentic servant leadership. And the thing we've got to bear in mind that we're all capable of both. So even if I pick two people that are really obvious examples, um, Gandhi and Mandela of authentic servant leaders, they had their moments when they were egocentric. You know, so, so we're all we're capable of being both, but they were predominantly authentic servant leaders. And, and that showed up in their actions, their behaviors, etc. Now we can point to other leaders in history and a very obvious one with, that comes up uh, is Adolf Hitler. So he was, again, predominantly an egocentric leader, but he did have authentic servant leadership qualities. You know, people know that he was a vegetarian when very few people were. He was a dog lover and an animal lover. He passed some of the first um, laws on protecting animals in Europe. So he had that side to him, but predominantly he was egocentric. And once you understand this oscillation at an individual level, uh, you then see that it happens at a systemic level. Yes. And what happens is we end up having these over a period of time, as more egocentric leadership prevails, you get the uh, infection of the system. Mm -hmm. So you get to a point where the system itself is only promoting people who are predominantly egocentric leaders. That's where we are right now. And you look all the way to the top, we, you look at uh, the, the big authority bodies, the governments, whichever organizations you want to look at, the really big ones, the big global ones, the big national ones, you can see they are infected with 
egocentric leadership. So essentially, if you look at historically, you have, um, and again, these are approximations, so basically generational. So from approximately 1929, when we had the Wall Street crash, yeah. to 1954, was the last leadership, uh, what I call winter crisis. And that's where you, but during that time, so that so you've got this prevalence of egocentric leadership, and under the surface, you have this emergence that begins of servant leaders. Because uh, during these really harsh times, and times are getting harsh um, on, on many levels in this world, you know, if we look at health, politics, economics, finance, etc., you know, we're, we're on a tough road right now. Uh, but it's a necessary one. That's what the winter season is about. And during this time, these authentic servant leaders are emerging. And when we move into the next phase, so, so in um, around the early 1950s, there was this re-emergence of prosperous times and the prevalence of servant leadership came forward. So you had, you know, whether it was in politics, you could argue, you know, um, Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, you know, these kind of more inspirational people that, you know, again, they had their own egos and they did things which were egoic, but they were predominantly servant leaders. And people like this started to come to the fore. And this really, um, so prosperous times began to emerge. And then we hit the sort of late 70s. We really cranked into prosperous times then. We were in the summer and things were really good. And the thing is, when things get really good, you have this expansion and emergence of egocentric leadership again. And people who were driven more by power, authority, significance, material gain, rather than serving other people. And this then leads um, in, you know, we then move on to a period which around 2001, which is interesting when 9-11 happened, where we, we get the re-emergence of crisis times. And so we go from prosperous times to the emergence of crisis times, and we get this prevalence of egocentric leadership, which is what we've been in for a while now, mm -hmm. since the early 2000s. And we're now in that crossover time where we're going into the winter season. And so the, 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 the egocentric leadership is still dominant but it's in danger and quite often the egocentric the ego ultimately destroys itself so you know what i haven't covered so far yet is is the you know the context of of what what is the ego i guess and and that to so to really understand why we're in a leadership crisis you have to understand the ego um and you have to understand how how do you well how do you spot an authentic servant leader or how do you spot an egocentric leader so these that that's kind of the next level down of the conversation i think that's one of my questions there alistair out of what you've said is, is you know a, a how do you spot the servant leader leader or the egocentric leader and would they necessarily in any circumstances be uh, driven or drawn to being egocentric or servant leadership uh, but it's just given the times and the environment one rises and the other one doesn't is that do you see what i mean yeah yeah so so you you can always go against the grain um yeah. there's plenty of contrarians and you, what you'll find again if you look in history this is just about prevalence it's not about completely one or the other yeah. so if you know again if we look historically uh using the Ad adolf hitler example in the same time period in which hitler was emerging as a egocentric leader who was clearly you know, 
doing a lot of things that egocentric leaders do. So they 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 uh, like to, they love to have an internal enemy and an external enemy. So Hitler's internal enemies for his power were the Jews and to some extent the aristocratic Germans and the external enemy were the allies who, you know, with you know they had who he had some degree of justification of resenting because they took Alsace Lorraine after the First World War and you know there there were massive trading restrictions which impoverished Germany. So Hitler but Hitler had this internal and external enemy. That's something an egocentric leader really, really does. Whilst he was doing all of that, if you move your eyes across the world to India, Gandhi was doing something very different. He was, you know, walking around in a loincloth, speaking to people and bringing people together and refusing to consent to uh, the British Raj and, you know, leading India towards independence in a very peaceful way. So these two forces of leadership were beautifully illustrated at the same time. Now, this is through the 30s and early 40s. Of course, India became independent shortly after the Second World War. So that, that's a great example. But within the context of all that, and the other thing you've got to bear in mind is the world's coming together more. So these cycles aren't global. They're becoming global now. But historically, so China was always doing its own thing. So they had their own completely independent leadership cycle yes. crisis. You know, see, their seasons were not in sync with the European cycles. I see. Um, but but as the world's becoming more one, the cycles are becoming more in sync. Mm. And uh, each phase appears to last. All the ones I've identified have gone back a long way. I generally, you know, between 18 and 25 years on the whole, they're in that kind of time span, span which is about a generation. So a couple of things there, Alistair. If you if you look at Gandhi and Hitler side by side, um, I mean they're not interchangeable, are there? There must be something in their character and upbringing that enables them to be that type of leader. So it it, it predetermines that you know Hitler would be an egocentric leader, does it? And that um, Gandhi would be a, a servant leader. So, but it just it, it just the circumstances in their country enable them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's, so the circumstances, but there's also you know, it's 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 an inner thing, you know. Um, so so really, what what um, when when we start start looking at values, what 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 drives the person and are their highest values? Yeah. And it's a very simple formula because if someone says to me. Oh, I can't, you know, if my son says to me, I can't concentrate, can't do my work, can't do my homework, can't study, no, I don't. It's because he doesn't have a high value on whatever he's studying. But if I say to him, oh, do you want to play your computer game and see if you can beat the next level? He, you won't be able to stop him. He'll be relentless. He'll be focused. He won't get distracted, etc. because that's high on his values. So we all have values. So the thing we then have to look at is what are, what is driving our values? Is it, is, is it our ego? Or is it something more deeper within us? Yeah. Something that I, I would call spiritual that's driving us. And that's that's the key because that that can change everything. Because people get told, you know, listen to your inner voice. But there's two inner voices. There's the inner voice of the ego and there's the inner voice of the spirit, the natural intuition. And when you um, get used to listening to one rather than the other, that can, at an individual level, make a big difference. Now, what can influence you is the environment around you. So you have to look from the top downwards. So 
without getting too controversial, if you look at, say, the UK, we know that there are people globally above our, our, our national leaders. But if you look at the top of um, politics, in, say, for example, I mean, I could pick on a number of fields, but if we just look at politics, that filters down. So if you have a, so what you have to do is egocentric leaders aren't always with Hitler's demeanor. Okay, and authentic servant leaders aren't always with Gandhi's demeanor. Um, sometimes it, what you have to look at is the behavior, not the demeanor or the charisma. You've got to look beyond that. Yeah. What are their actual behaviors demonstrating? So if we have, and I, I'm, everything I'm going to say is in the mainstream media, um, if we have a, a prime minister who started a fund, which a multi-billion pound fund, which had seven and a half billion pounds of shares in Moderna, the last we heard. And he's a founder, co-founder of this fund. Mm -hmm. And he's been asked about his shareholdings in the fund, which we know there are some, but we don't know to what extent. And he's also been asked about their shares in Moderna. And he's refused to answer those questions. But the fact is, we know that that was a reality. He, as chancellor, was instrumental in Moderna getting a massive multi-billion pound contract. Okay? Mm -hmm. He's not questioned about it. So what, one of the things you notice about egocentric leaders is there's a lack of transparency. Um, you consistently find this. Um, if we, you, know, you could also look at, and there's a lack of accountability as well. So also with Rishi Sunak, he has, um, his wife is the biggest, largest indiv individual shareholder of Infosys. Infosys is the largest digital information company in the world, the last I, 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 I checked. And she has a very significant shareholding in that. Um, so much so that I think her share dividend was over 50 million pounds last year. So she earned a, a massive chunk of this company and they benefited when 40, 40 plus billion pounds were effectively wasted on a track and trace system. A lot, a lot of that money went to emphasis. And that was again awarded by Richie Sunak was instrumental in the awarding of that contract. You know, we everyone knows about Matt Hancock. You know, his best mate was a, a pub landlord, and he got a PPE contract. And you know, this is in plain sight. You know, there was a there was a, a Tory MP called Zara Sultana, uh, and and she actually stood up and said, "How is this corruption by any other name?" She was one of the only MPs though that stood up, and that was the thing I noticed. Hardly any other MP stood up. This is when you realise there's been an infection because only one or two MPs are standing up and, and calling out. And, and everything I've said to you is in, it's in the national press. You can look it up. And only Zara Sultana, as far as I'm aware at the time, that I think there have been a couple of other Tory MPs that have said things, but they're in the minority. And if we were not in a winter time, if we were in a springtime of servant leadership, yeah, then it would be all the Tory. MPs would have been jumping up and down. So we can't have a leader who, do, who does that, who won't be honest and open about his affairs. We can't have a, someone leading the health service who's, you know, um, awarding contracts to his best mate who had no experience in PPE, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not happening. So that tells us that we have a systemic leadership crisis and we're in a winter season and it's infected our big institutions. Because once it happens at the top level, that yeah. comes all the way down. Um, so it will be happening at the local councils and all the other levels. Well, I think that's what I see, Alistair, in, in my work, in that I'm I'm not working at a governmental level, but I am working with organisations and leaders in organisations who are having challenges in their boardrooms or their partnerships. And they are struggling, I think, with 
how to be authentic leaders uh, in the boardroom, how to enable people to speak up and have a voice and have a voice of dissent even. I think the voice of yeah. dissent seems to have been cancelled right across society. Yes, 100%. So, so again, if we go for the Hitler example, Hitler was the first person ever to appoint um, someone, Joseph Goebbels, as the Minister of Propaganda. Yes. Because he actually, you know, they actually had a department called the Ministry of Propaganda. And they were, at least, I mean, okay, I guess at least they were open and honest about it. But the other thing you'll spot is when we enter a winter season of leadership crisis, there will be lots more propaganda. So that means there will be more censorship because people are being coerced because egocentric leaders are looking to control people. Okay. Authentic yes. servant leaders are looking to inspire people. Yes. Okay. And this is a, a really interesting point here that comes up for me a lot. People talk about motivation. Well, motivation, you really need to define what it means. But for me, motivation is an external force. Inspiration, which comes from the Latin in spiritu, the spirit within, is an internal force. And so they're very different things. So, so egocentric leaders need to motivate people. Okay, they need that external force. And that could be through money, through punishment, through um, whatever. But fear is a big one. Okay. And authentic servant leaders, they inspire people. Yeah. They're, they're people that, and the interesting thing is, there was a great book written called Power Versus Force that pretty much nails this. Inspiration is by far, it's, 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 it's like an infinite source of energy. Uh, motivational is a it can be a powerful force but it's limited and you know inspirational force just keeps on keeps on it keeps on motivational force you keep having to keep pushing the wheel they have to keep being re-motivated and re-motivated mm -hmm. that's why you want inspired team members not motivated team members okay in a short term and i'm not criticizing motivation it has its place but you have to understand it's a it's a short-term thing Yes. And when you get into this hamster wheel of just using motivation all the time, that's another sign that you're in an egocentric leadership situation. That's fascinating. And when you come down to the, to our level, to, to the level of the individual then, Alistair, so self-leadership, mm -hmm. what do you see there? I mean, I suppose you're seeing the same pattern there as well. Yeah, so so absolutely. So this is really good that you mentioned that. So so I call uh, two, two areas. So self-leadership for me, uh, there's a great book written by Robin Sharma called, uh, you know, uh, I think it's called The Leader Without Without a Title. But leadership without title is is very much about self-leadership. And it's something I talk about in my book where, you know, leading ourselves is important. But at the level of self-leadership, you have both authentic self-leadership and you have egocentric leadership. So, you, don't, you know, you don't have the servant element because you're not serving others, but you're you, you're either being authentic and you're following your spirit or you're following your ego. And if you look at your actions through the day, what did I do today? And was it some things are neutral because, you know, you might have got up and brushed your teeth, you know, <laughs> whatever. There's a lot of behaviors are quite neutral, but a lot of your behaviors and your drivers behind those behaviors, you, you, can, you can be your own judge and say, was I in my ego energy when I did that? Or was I in my authentic energy? And, and it's a really good question when, you, when you're reflecting on the day to, okay. to see where you were. And so, you know, for us as individuals, are we being inspired by, by by models, by role models, by looking at the external leaders, the leaders in government, the leaders in organisations? Yeah, or, 
or we're being motivated by the egocentric ones. Yes. To be so, so we, we ourselves, when you know, you, the individual knows when you really tune into your intuition, most of the clients I work with end up getting into meditation at some level because it's, it's a way of really connecting with your intuition and your intuition will tell you, you know, you, you, your, your intuition will not, it's no bullshit. You know, your, your intuition tells you whether you're being authentic or not. And when you when you listen to your intuition in that in that way, that's how you emerge yourself being predominantly authentic. And that way, that kind of individual will be more predisposed to being an authentic servant leader. Um, sometimes there's a conflict because they're in a job where they're told, oh, if you don't do this, this and this. So they then have to meet a trade off. You know, do I risk put my job in jeopardy and maybe I can't pay my mortgage, but I know what they're doing. I don't agree with it. It's not wrong. It, it, it's wrong. It's, you know, it, it's it's against who I feel I am. And so we all we all have those bridges to cross, all of us. And it's, a, it's an individual choice we have to make. And, you know, the greatest example I can say of, of, of that choice is an extreme one, which was Nelson Mandela. When he was tried for high treason with his co-defendants, you know, he, he was being questioned. His integrity was being questioned by the lawyer in the case. And his response was um, he mentioned a few things about the lawyer saying, I, I guess, you know, he said, you, you're there in your fancy shirt and tie and you probably drove here in a fancy car and you probably live in a fancy house with a fancy wife, all paid for by the fancy salary that you've been paid to say what you're saying to me. I'm telling you what I'm telling you because I'm prepared to die for it. And when he said those words, I remember I read about a journalist who was at the uh, hearing and he said literally the hairs on the back of his neck stood on end. And, you know, it was um, the, the whole room went quiet for, for about a minute, the whole courtroom, because they knew they were in the presence of an immense, immense power. And that was a tipping point. So even though he ended up going to Robin Island, that set the scene for the next you know, 26 years until he was released from Robin Island and, you know, and he stayed in that power and he said, I don't want to die, but I'm prepared to die uh, to serve other people. That is, you know, the greatest example of servant leadership that you can, you know, find is, it's an amazing, you know, the Mandela story really is. And, and, and don't forget Mandela was kind of, when he was young, he was a bit of a terrorist, if the truth be told. And he was involved in arms and all kinds of dodgy things. Yeah. But inside there was a, but he 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 chose. He became consciously aware, yeah. and he he chose to to serve, and he realised that the greatest, most fulfilling state that that he could enter would be was a state whereby he was, even if necessary, prepared to die to serve the people he'd chosen to serve. Okay, so Alistair, becoming consciously aware. So, I mean, a couple of things you've said is one, you know, we may be in the winter time now. The the, the benefit or the opportunity of that is that what follows is spring. So, how yeah. do we spring forward into this, uh, you know, this opportunity of servant leadership? Because I I think that is about conscious awareness, isn't it? It is. About yeah. So, so, so servant leaders. And the reason I told you the story about Mandela is that perfectly leads into it because it's about fear because yeah, yeah. you as a leader yourself have to be as fearless as possible. Yes. It's completely impossible to be without fear because you're human. We're all human and we all have an ego. And you know, the, when we're in fear, in anger, in sadness, in grief, these are all egoic states, but they're completely understandable states to be in. 
because that's part of being human. When we transcend the ego, we're liberated from those states. And the one that's most controlling in leadership is fear. So the, the thing um, for us to be servant leaders, we have to confront our fear. And look, for me personally, and I've worked with a number of clients who've worked on this, being as comfortable as you can with your own inevitable death is 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 pretty good foundation to start with. You know, um, my background in martial arts um, led me to read a lot about the samurai. And I then got into some, I met a guy who was a stoic and you wouldn't know it because they're very understated people and they don't go telling people they're stoics and got a bit into understanding stoicism and the one thing i found about the stoics and the samurai every day they vividly imagine their own passing that they, they vividly imagine themselves leaving their physical body and and they do it to such a degree and and some of the samurais uh, one one guy i spoke to he imagines he said i would i, I you know he, he loves his children but he even imagines his children are going to die one day so he imagines them passing. He doesn't want it to happen. And this takes you completely out of fear, takes you completely out of fear. Because once, you know, that's the foundation, because there are kind of other things you might be fearful of as well. But so so as individuals liberating ourselves, it's, a, it's an individual choice. The, the ground is now being set in this winter season. There's the perfect ground and there's going to be a lot of chaos. There's always a lot of chaos. And in this chaos, servant leaders can emerge and they will have to be fearless and maybe you will die maybe you will suffer maybe you will whatever but if you're at one with that or as at one as you can be then you're in a position to lead and you will lead you you will allow greatness you, you will facilitate greatness by being in that state but it's it's people's choice they it, it has to be made at an individual level um, and some people will make it because they will see the chaos and they will see what's caused it and they will have had enough of it and they will want something different. And they will, you know, so so the other thing that's often not mentioned in leadership is what I call followship and followship is completely overlooked. So followship is just as important and, and because it's the other dimension of leadership and it's we can lead, we can follow from a place of ego or we can follow from a place of authenticity. So we could be following somebody because they're paying us lots of money. Yeah, that's our ego. Or we can be following someone because they really want to make a difference. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's a bit of a pain to follow this person. Maybe it's even costing us money to follow that person. Maybe it's not convenient. You know, sometimes it works out really well. So we get paid and we, you know, it can it can work out both ways. But we're following that person. Why are we following them? Are we in our spirit or, or are we in our ego? And... What do you think in terms of the younger generation, Alistair, and social media? And I, I'm thinking of, you know, Instagram and TikTok and things that do seem to boost people, younger people's egos, so that they are very, what I would call, uh, self-absorbed. They are looking at themselves a lot of the time and the impact, yeah. uh, the immediate impact yeah. they're living. Yeah, you could say they're living in the moment, but they're living in the reflective moment of looking at themselves in the in the mirror or or looking at themselves on social media and and uh, that seems to be very e egocentric or egoic. yeah it is it is and i think it um what one of the benefits of all of that and i agree with that is is that it highlights um the problem and it enables people um to, to realize what they're doing you know some people don't and some people 
Um, you know, we know there's a high suicide rate amongst the young people now. And social media is a, a tremendous issue. And there could be a breaking point at some time in the next few years where people break away from social media in the way that I've certainly know a few people have already done that, a few young people. It, it is, it's, it's an interesting situation we're in because people are literally addicted to their phones, aren't they? Can't put them down. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, these are all very, very relevant points and they will impact future leadership cycles, um, definitely. Maybe they speed them up, maybe they slow them down. I'm not sure, but they will accentuate the problems. And then people, you know, some people have a breakdown. Um, there's one young girl I know, and she um, she hardly uses her phone at all now. And she had a she had a really um, challenging uh, breakdown. She's a friend of a friend of my. She's a daughter of a friend of mine, and yeah, she she had a bit of a breakdown, and she only uses her phone, you know, for a few minutes a day, and she goes and sees her friends kind of like old school so you know maybe that's the sort of thing that might happen but when people realize people will wait will see what happens is people often don't realize when they're following an egocentrically driven leader they don't realize it and sometimes that's because they're in their own ego but the ego always destroys itself whether it's at an individual level or at a collective level it's not sustainable um it wants um you know What's the name of that James Bond film? The world is not enough. Yes. Yeah? So that's that's yeah. that's the ego. The more it gets, the more it wants. The more it gets, the more it wants. Yeah. It's insatiable. Yeah. And this, you know, it's like a young person on Facebook. The more likes they get, the more, you know, if they once they've got 200 likes, if they get 150 for the next post, that's not enough. They've got to get 250 and they get a momentary buzz when they break their previous lot. I've seen this happen with young people. I've got young sons you know and they get this buzz and it lasts a few seconds and then they're on for the next oh, i've got to get 300 now and then the next one gets 150 and they feel depressed and then the next one oh and it's just this cycle they get stuck in um, of accentuating the ego and it's completely unsustainable and this is why we have such a high suicide rate amongst young people right now incredibly sad alistair so what can what can we as individuals do, you know, if we take on board your message, uh, and I see it as a message of hope, actually, that we may be in tough times, but if we are in the winter, spring's coming next, and, you know, 100%, maybe, yeah. maybe we can have an early spring if we do, if we do something about it. Yeah. Um, so what could we as individuals who take on board this message that you're giving us about understanding the difference between egoic and servant leadership being able to look for and recognize and maybe support that in the wider world, um, but also look for it within ourselves. So I see, see that as being at three levels, really, the individual level, the sort of group or organizational level, depending on what kind of groups or organizations we belong to, and then at this global societal level. Yeah, so, um, so it's a great question. So, so the first thing is, you know, there's very simple ways you know, without going into loads of detail, I mean, I'm writing a book about it, but keeping it very simple, um, spotting egocentric uh, behavior, both as a leader and a follower, is, is pretty easy uh, for, for yourself because you know, you can ask yourself. So people have to ask themselves. So I would say to people, reflect on your day and say, okay, what did I do today from when I woke up to, you know, when I went to sleep? You know, what was I? What activities was I doing? And when I was doing those activities, was I predominantly my ego 
or predominantly was I being authentic yeah. and, and, and connected to my spiritual being? Um, and that's a great question and, and a great way of taking stock at an individual level. Now, we can make the same observation of our team that we're in, our organization, and, and look at both ourselves and others. And look, if we're trying to call out egocentric leadership, there's just some pretty obvious things that go with it. Um, I think we've alluded to already. So there's a lack of transparency, a lack of accountability. Um, there is constant motivation, which is using fear and control. Um, so these are the things that you, you pick up on. If you are in a, in a team and you're just wanting to do stuff for the team because you just want to make a difference, then you know you're, that's inspiration. And if you see other people in the team doing that and leaders trying to inspire people rather than trying to motivate them, you know, those are the telltale signs at the organizational level. And, and equally, you know, we go to the, the global level and, you know, right now we have lots of people flying around in, in private jets telling everyone else not to fly around in, in jets, you know, and, you know, without going down that rabbit hole, you know, it's hypocrisy, you know, yeah, it, it's the simplest way. motivational nor inspirational. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not at all. They're telling us oh, what to do yeah. and they're not allowing and they're not allowing uh, dissent or challenge. So the other thing we talked about, if you, you know, um, I think a famous um, mainstream scientist said, I, I am the science, which, you know, is probably, you know, um, one of the scientists that I work with just, he said he, he literally burst out laughing and spat his cornflakes all over the, <laughs> you know, um, all over the screen because when he, when he heard him say that, because that's the contradiction of what science is. Science is about challenge. It's about, it's never settled and it's there and, and it's there to be challenged. So when people are telling you they own the science or when they're telling you you can't, you know, that, that when they're quashing discerning voices, yeah. then, you know, you know you're in an egocentric leadership situation. And um, what can you do about that? You can call them out. You can not consent. You can do what Gandhi did. That, that Gandhi stood up to real egocentric leadership that the British Raj was demonstrating in the 1930s. He stood up to it. And so did Mandela did his version of that as well. Uh, and you stand up to it and you don't consent and you, you don't get violent. You don't, you don't need to, they didn't, you, but you stand firmly in your ground and, they are and you, yeah, models. you call it, you, yeah, you call it out, you call it out. Uh, and that's, that's all you can do. And, and in calling it out, you have to accept that it could get uncomfortable because they might, if it's if it's your boss at work, it might you might it might cost you your job, you know, potentially. So people have to make choices there, and I understand why people compromise sometimes because it's 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 difficult. It's difficult if you you know you, you've got a job and you're and you're not happy with some of the things the company's doing, and it, and it's 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 not. Um, I'm not saying it's a straightforward thing to do, and you know sometimes you feel you have to compromise, and that's challenging. But if you are having to compromise. Find a way out, find a way where, you know, okay, at the moment I'm having to compromise, but I'm going to find a way of removing that compromise. I'm, you know, I'm got to, when you put the intention out there, you'll be surprised the doors do open and alternative routes open up. So that would be my yeah, kind of overall advice. I think a lot of, actually a lot of inspiration from you, Alistair. Thank you very much for that. A lot of inspiration in how we can 
recognize these different types of leadership playing out, uh, you know, in, in real time, actually, in, in society right now, and maybe feel powerless and maybe feel overwhelmed by some of the fear that we are feeling. But actually, what I take from this interview is that there is a positive, uh, there was a positive note, there's a sense of optimism, because we are moving into spring. And there are things that we as individuals can do um, to either support ourselves as in self-leadership, but also to call out the leaders who are not being authentic, um, where we have the power to do that. So Yeah, 100%. And I think the other thing is, you know, so we talked about our attachment to life, which obviously generates fear, which is, again, completely human, completely understandable. But we also have attachment to other things, material things, that kind of thing. You know, so a lot of people say, oh, I have to do this job. I met a guy recently, he was in a job he absolutely hated and um, was having to compromise his values and everything else. And I sort of said to him, well, you know, why can't you leave? He said, oh, I can't afford to. I won't get another job paying this much. I said, well, how bad would it get? I said, what would happen if they sacked you? What would you, how would you go? And he, and he had to go away and think about it. And when he came back, he thought, do you know what? I could survive. You know, I've got enough, you know, and he said, you know, and all those expensive skiing holidays and all that, I could probably shelve those. And I, I it, he, he could see how, and I said, if so if you didn't go on those skiing holidays and, and do these other things, would you be a happier person overall? He said, oh, yeah. So so he's actually left the job now. <laughs> and that's you know, a lovely story, actually, because it is somebody stepping into their authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. stepping into his power and, you know, realising that, you know, quite often it's not as bad as, you know, that the, 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 we've got all this fear. Oh, my God, if I lose my job. And it's like, well, so what? Just imagine you did lose your job. What would you actually do? And then you start thinking about reality. Because people talk about fear of the unknown. It's actually known, but it's in the subconscious. So we have to do it and dig it out. So it's not, you know, so it's in plain sight. Once, you're, once you actually know the thing you're fearful of, you know, like that example I gave you there, you know, he's scared of losing his job. And he hadn't really consciously thought it through. Once he consciously thought out, if I was lost this job, what would my reality look like? What would I have to do? I, well, I couldn't go on these skiing holidays. I couldn't do this and that. But, wow, I'd be able to get up in the morning and I'd feel lighter. And, I, you know, once he got into it, he, he could see that it, that was the best thing for him to do. And funnily enough, I just heard from him the other day, he's, he's just been offered a consultancy role, which is actually paying him more money for half the hours he was working. So... <laughs> Sounds perfect. So I, As, I always say... Plan for the worst, which is imagine the worst, but hope for the best. And I think you know that that yeah that must be a, a good motto. What what would your closing message be, Alistair? Um, I just say to people, um, just be aware of people who are using fear um, to control you, and it's a really good thing because when you're when you become aware of that fear, liberate yourself from, from it. Yes, that that's um, and and uh, you know. One way to liberate yourself from it, we've just discussed, just on a practical level, which is just, okay, if that happened, what would I do? Uh, another way you can say, well, you know, which kind of builds on that is what would be the benefits if that happened? When this guy wrote down the benefits of him leaving his job, it, it became quite an appealing scenario. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but deal with fear, but connect with who you really are. Um, I say, I, I um, every day I imagine myself leaving my physical body. Um, I was with my mum recently when she passed and it was a very spiritual experience for me. 
and everyone's got their own path to tread and their own way to find in that direction. But when you, I don't want to die, but I'm more accepting of death than I've ever been in my life, which means I, I'm not that fearful. If, if someone says to me, oh, if you do this, this might happen and that might like, so what? Yeah. You know, it's so, so yeah, come, come at one with, you know, recognize your fear, recognize when other people are trying to use fear to control you and others and transcend it. Fabulous. I think that could be the title for our podcast, Transcending Fear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, where, well, where can people find you? What you have a website? Yeah. Or... So my 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 uh, website is called certainprogress.com. So yeah, yeah, progress is always optional. Change is inevitable because people take, talk about change all the time, don't they? Yes. And I, I named it 16 years ago, certainprogress.com. Um, yeah. So that's people can get a hold of me there and and look out for the book yeah and or linkedin or whatever send yeah. me a message on linkedin okay so on linkedin your website certain progress and a book in the pipeline which should be out in the next few weeks yeah which well i'm i'm no i'm i, I will finish it end of next month is the schedule to finish the book and then i've got to go through the publishing process so i don't know how long that's going to take but you know we're talking two to three months well, perhaps you'll come back on again then and talk about the book, Alistair. That would yeah, be yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to, yeah. Alistair, yeah. thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thanks a lot, Jane. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please do subscribe to the Barefoot Mediator podcast series. And if you would like to access my free video series for managing in times of change, challenge and crisis, and download a PDF copy of my book, How to Beat Bedlam in the Boardroom and Boredom in the Bedroom, please go to janegunn.co.uk slash video. The link is in the show notes.